This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Peggy Hoskins, and today we are talking about the science and art of avalanche forecasting. And the snowpack is really the story of the season, just like geology is the story of the eons. And so we start looking at this snow that falls in October and see how it changes and metamorphoses, whether it becomes a faceted base layer or not. Then you just watch the, each, each weather event as it puts on more snow, each wind event, each thing just changes that story. And so you're just writing a new story every season, really. That's Eric Trenbeth, the U.S. Forest Service Utah Avalanche Center forecaster for the LaSalle and Abajo Mountains in the Monte LaSalle National Forest. Today we are talking with Eric about the observation of snow and the snowpack and how that all comes together into an avalanche forecast. So before we dive into the avalanche discussion, I do want to talk about what we call the snow tell sites here in the LaSalles. Now there's not one in the Abajos, is there? There are actually two in the Abajos. There's one, it's called Camp Jackson and one at Buckboard Flat, which is on the North Creek side of the range. And they're at about 8,500 feet. And there's over, there's several hundred snowtail sites throughout the Intermountain West now. And basically they measure the water content in the snowpack so that water managers have an idea of how much water we're going to have in in the springtime for irrigation, for, you know, dam storage, for everything. And like in the springtime, when they say something like our basin is at 43% of normal or 80% of normal or whatever, that's where they're getting this data is from these snowtail sites. Yeah. So we have a new one here in the LaSalle's. We had one before at the Geyser Pass trailhead. Yeah. Right near the Geyser Pass trailhead. There were actually two snowtail sites up there. One kind of by the Trans-LaSalle trailhead, which is getting so low and with climate change, snow lines are getting higher and higher, and they were finding that site wasn't very useful at all. And then the site near the Geyser Pass Trailhead was an okay site, but once at 9,600 feet, but it got a lot of sun, and it was on not on the best exposure. And then we directed them to this place where we've been measuring snow at the end of the Gold Basin Road for the Avalanche Center, and I worked as the NEPA coordinator with the Forest Service to help get that approved, and then they installed that this summer at the Gold Basin Snow Study Plot. So that's the new snowtail site. So snowtail measures, obviously, precipitation, snow depth, what's called precipitation smooth, snow smooth, and snow water equivalent. So I wanted you to explain a bit what this means. Yeah, so the snow water equivalent is the most important aspect of measuring snow because snow comes in a variety of different densities, and how dense that snow is or how much water is contained in it determines how much Water is available for water users, and then from an avalanche standpoint, it almost also determines how much weight is being applied to the snowpack with each storm. So 10 inches of snow is not created equally. 10 inches of very low-density snow does not have the same impact on weak layers in the snowpack as 10 inches of very dense snow because it's just a matter of weight on the snowpack. So measuring the water in the snow is what it really comes down to, both for avalanches and for our, our water usage. Yeah, and that is the number that's used, say, for estimating runoff to the Colorado River Basin, things like that. Exactly. Okay. And how, I mean, how does it measure it? What is the instrument that actually measures that water? It's pretty interesting. So they've got this giant pillow, well, giant. It's probably 15 feet across. It's a, it's a circle. And it's a, it's a pillow that is filled with like an antifreeze fluid, but it's a non-toxic one in case it leaks so that it won't freeze. And basically, it has a sensor above it that measures the height of the snow, which is just the depth. And then to measure that water weight, as the snow applies pressure to this pillow, 
the antifreeze gets displaced into some pipes inside of a little house, and then there's a gauge as that pressure goes up, and it tells you what the water equivalent is, the snow water equivalent is. In terms of snow deposits, like a, a, an event, I mean, there there's a couple things to think about. There's like the depth of the snow, um, and how long does it sit there before something else is deposited on it? And what time of year is it? How much? How temp? What's the temperature going to be once that snow has has already fallen? So all this contributes to understanding the snowpack for the coming year. And I mean, what what are some key things you look at at you know early on, say you know this time of year, October October November, where the first layers of snow are getting set down, and what 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 points do you key off of? You know, it's fairly typical is to get this early season snow. I actually, as an avalanche forecaster, kind of wish that it didn't happen. People always get really excited about it and they get really pumped when it snows in October. But it generally follows is followed by a high pressure period in early November. So that first snow on the ground begins to deteriorate and dry out and become a pile of what we call weak, sugary, faceted snow. And then that forms an unstable base layer at the bottom of the snowpack. People often think, well, it melts and it freezes and forms an ice layer up there that nothing sticks to and that's actually not really the case what's happening is as heat loss through the ground causes vapor to transfer up to the snowpack and be lost out into the atmosphere the snowpack just kind of gradually forms facets on the bottom of these crystals it's it's a, it's a bit involved for a radio conversation but as uh, the, the snowpack basically turns into weak sugary faceted snow as we have a period of cold clear nights and high pressure so when we get early season snow like this essentially what we need is for it to just keep right on snowing until we get at least a meter of snow on the ground to get some insulation for the pack to really have some strength throughout the course of the winter the whole basics of an avalanche is a big mass of snow sliding down a hillside so why would a mass start sliding? What slides is a slab. What you need is a cohesive slab that's a separate unit from the weak layer that's underneath. So in October, we're getting these weak layers forming, let's say, at the ground layer, and then it starts to snow again, and the new snow that sits on top forms its own cohesive layer that's separate from that weak layer underneath. And depending on gravity, the, the shape of the terrain, there's some tension on this overriding slab and it's kind of hanging in a state of suspension waiting for a trigger and that trigger can come through the addition of more snow creating a heavier load or a person or a snowmobile or something walking onto that slab and causing it to break and fail on the weak layer underneath the snow is always changing a lot so i know you go out during snow season several times a week and physically what you do and people who you work with um, is you dig what's called snow pits and basically you're getting a cross-section of what that profile is. I wanted to talk about the process of digging a snow pit and what, what you get out of it in terms of understanding what's, what's going on. Yeah, so basically, you know, we, we often will dig down to the ground. As the snowpack gets deeper and deeper, we go down to what we think is the most important weak layer. But throughout the season, until we get three, four, or five feet of snow, we'll continue to dig all the way to the ground, and we're looking for various weak layers and striations in the snowpack. 
you know, the Canyonlands, for those of us that live in Canyonlands, studying the geology here is a great way to think about the snowpack because each layer in the snowpack has been created by a different weather event, whether it's a high pressure period that forms the faceted snow, whether it's a sun crust that forms on the surface, whether it's wind deposition or even wind erosion, all these things create the different striated layers in the snowpack. And some are harder and some are weaker. And it's the same when you look at Canyonlands, right? And you see the big sure Wingate cliffs and then you've got some softer um, Chinle slopes underneath it. Or, or whatever. So basically when you look in the snowpack, you're looking for hard layers over top of weak layers. So it's not rocket science really. If you can find a weak, loose, faceted layer underneath a hard layer, it's, that's an unstable, potentially unstable situation. And that's what we're looking for. We'll do what's called a hand hardness test. You'll, you'll just start at the top of the snowpack. And the first thing you'll do is push with your fist and see what kind of resistance you can get. And if you can push all the way through, then you've got pretty soft snow. And as you go down, Ideally, what it would be is it would be soft on top and the further down into the snowpack you get, it would just get harder and harder from fist to forefinger to one finger to a pencil to a knife. Those are the ways that we measure the hardness of the densities. But if you're pushing along and you've got a one finger slab and then all of a sudden underneath it, you can push your fist through it, then you've got a clear weak layer underneath the hard layer. And then we'll like do what's called an extended column test and we'll, we'll pull out a shovel and a saw and you can do stability tests to see what kind of a trigger it takes to get that slab to release on the weak layer. So if it keeps snowing, and uh, ideally you would have that profile where it just got harder and harder as you went down. Exactly. That's the ideal. <laughs> right. That's rare, especially That's... in our snowpack. We have what's called a continental snowpack, which is Colorado and inland, where it's a cold, shallow region. Like Colorado likes to say they get a lot of snow, but nothing compared to like northern, typically not like northern Utah or even the Tetons or, or up in Montana, right? So the deeper the snowpack is, the stronger that it is. And the shallower a snowpack is, the weaker it is. And we tend to have shallow, weak snowpack here in the LaSalle's, just like our neighbors over in Colorado. You're looking at the snowpack or this, uh, the pit you've dug. How, I mean, Obviously, you, you pick sites that you hope are representative, but how do you extrapolate that across the mountains? You dig a bunch. But you know, you also know the aspects that you're working with. Typically, our weakest layers form on north-facing slopes, right. as you pointed out earlier. That's the coldest, coldest areas, and that's where the facets really develop. And so we'll start looking and seeing where these facets are appearing the, the most and I'll dig a snow pit at like 10,500 or 11,000 feet and find this weak faceted layer. So then I'll move and try to find an adjacent slope on the same aspect and elevation and see if it's forming there. And if it is, you start to get a pretty good idea that at that elevation on these aspects, you've got this, this weak faceted layer. And then you move around to a South facing slope and you go, Oh, it's sun crusted over here, or it's not as deep right. over here. So the concerns aren't as great. Um, you also pay attention to wind loading a lot. Um, you know, wind loading, our, our winds typically come from the Southwest. I mean, they move around the compass and at the end of the storm, they come tend to switch around to the North, but during the peak intensity of the storms, they're usually loading snow from South to North. Mm -hmm. So in addition to having the weak layers on the North side, we're also getting heavy wind loading on North facing slopes as well. You've got the snow tell information, you've got these pits you dig. And so how does that all fit into a forecast? So you basically go out in the field one day and gather information, dig snow pits, chart this weak layer, see what the wind loading has been doing, see how the snow has changed throughout the day based on, on you know, temperature, wind, sun exposure. Then you, you know, collect that data. So you kind of have an idea of what the snowpack is doing in that moment. And then you go home, you go to bed, you check the weather before you go to bed, you wake up at five o'clock in the morning, 
look at what's changed overnight based yeah. on your data that you saw the day before. People who think I run up there first thing in the morning. <laughs> no, I like, I go, okay, overnight the winds were uh, southwest at 15 miles per hour. And then about midnight, they picked up to 35 miles an hour. So that means they're transporting more snow. And then it started snowing at four o'clock in the morning and I picked up two more inches. And so then I add all that into what I saw the day before and put out the daily forecast. And then I go out in the field again that day and see if what I said was correct. Um, and make it changes accordingly for the next day if that's needed, but then just basically see how well your forecast played out and then collect data for the next day's forecast. Yeah, so I've, I would imagine as the season goes on, it gets not easier, but you, you're, you're collecting more and more data as you go, and you know if you've been right or wrong, so it maybe gets a little bit Absolutely. Easier. And if yeah. you've been charting a weak layer, that's the thing is when you start charting a weak layer and then you're wondering how much load is it going to take to trigger that? When does the danger really skyrocket? You know, and that's definitely a, not an exact science. And if you get like three inches of water overnight, which is be rare, um, you know, it's going to go through the roof the next day, but we get nickeled and dimed here a lot. And what I mean by that is you've got this weak layer and then you get six inches of snow and that's not quite enough to send it over the charts you know and then and then the next day you get three inches of snow and then you don't get any snow for three more days so you're incrementally adding little yeah. straws to this weak layer underneath and it's hard to say exactly when that balance gets tripped whereas if you just get a big dump then you know that that balance has been yeah and each day tripped. you have i guess sun and wind effects that are messing with that yeah, you can have the avalanche danger rise just from wind, right? right? Let's say you've got a weak layer under there and it hasn't even snowed for three days, but three days ago it did snow six inches, which means you have snow available for transport, we call it. Yeah. So this loose snow is sitting on the ground and the wind picks it up and carries it to the other side of the ridge and suddenly three inches of snow carried by wind becomes nine inches of snow, you know, as it builds up on the other side. And so that's adding more weight to these potentially yeah. weak layers. Wow. And I mean, in terms of triggers, you know, they can be human or natural. How do, how do the triggers happen? Well, we have really scary conditions when we say remote triggers are possible. Typically, you're on top of the slab. But when remote triggering is common in faceted snowpacks, and it's when the load is finally so great on this weak layer that you're walking around through a meadow and you feel it collapse. Woomph, right? Have you ever felt that before? <laughs> Essentially, you've collapsed that slab on the weak layer. And if you were on a slope steep enough to slide, that would have been an avalanche or a failure. Right. So if you're getting woomphing as you're walking around throughout the snowpack, that means it's very tenuous and you could collapse that from a distance. So if you're adjacent to a steep slope, but you're underneath it and you collapse that meadow, that can basically kick the legs out from underneath right. the slab that's on the slope and you can trigger it from a distance, from underneath, from far away. Otherwise, you know, people typically will ski onto a slab and they will trigger it or ride onto a slab with their snowmobile or whatever and they will trigger it from above or at a certain point on the slab. We also refer to sweet spots. Sometimes it's a... It's a mystery where that trigger point comes from, and it might be a little shallower area on the slab. You might be working your way down the slope, and then all of a sudden you get to a spot where there's a, a, a tree underneath or a rock outcropping where the snow is shallower, and so your weight transfers through it easier, and that's where you trigger it. That's why we say just because it's been skied, it's not necessarily safe. Somebody might right. have skied it and skied it and skied it till the third person finally found that trigger point given the the fire this year in the LaSalle's uh, which affected a lot of skiable terrain it's definitely going to affect the avalanche season but how and uh, how are you accounting for that you know trees anchor slopes they anchor the snow they tend to hold the snow in place better although 
how dense the trees have to be for that to work is is something else an old adage is if it's if it's wide open enough to ski through it's probably wide open enough to slide but yeah. it still may hold it in together better once you burn these trees up and you lose a lot of those branches you definitely have less anchoring as the slope wraps around in Brumley Creek towards Gold Basin it gets really steep in there and it used to be really densely wooded and that took the big brunt of the fire on that first night and that's going to be quite a bit more uh, dangerous in there. Right above the weather station in the North Woods, some of that burned out pretty severely. The main ski terrain into the North Woods and over didn't burn as much, so that's not going to be as, as affected. But basically, it just makes the slopes more avalanche prone by opening them up more. Yeah. I mean, but no areas are definitely going to be closed or anything. It's just no, a matter no. of being more aware. More of... aware, because there's all kinds of open slopes out there anyway. So exactly. you just always have to watch your slope angle, which incidentally is you know, between 30 and 45 degrees, 35, 38 is kind of the bullseye number for avalanches to occur, but under 30 degrees, it's not really steep enough for the snow to slide. And over about 45 to 50 degrees, the snow sloughs off at enough regularly during the storm and throughout that the slabs don't tend to build up as much. So what you want is a slope angle that's not quite steep enough for the snow just to automatically run off, and then it can build a slab on top of it in which case, then you're waiting for a trigger to yeah, come along. Yeah, that makes sense. And how long have you been forecasting in the La Salle Abajos? So this is kind of my second foray into it. I, uh, I've been doing it now since 2013, okay. and I also did it here back in the early days from 1998 to 2003. Oh, wow. Now, you kind of mentioned this earlier or touched on it a bit, but how, how does the snowpack differ here, it, it, considering it's kind of a snow island in the mm-hmm. desert? What kind of differences do you see? Well, one of the big factors is the wind, and and certainly every mountain range sees its share of wind, but being an isolated mountain range out here in the desert, we can really get wind blasted, and that's why people look up from town and they see all the rocks showing on the south and west facing slopes, and they think there isn't any snow up there, but it's all on the north side, and you get on the north side, there's five, six, eight feet of right. snow or something back there, you know, so the winds really affect the snow back here, and then also, it's kind of hit or miss whether a storm will 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 hit us or not, like, yeah. you know, we've all seen it snow more in town than up in the mountains and if it's just off track just a little bit we can get completely missed we definitely have a little bit more of just a wild card factor yeah. by being out here in the middle of the desert yeah it's it's a smaller uh, target to hit mm-hmm. um and have you seen any long 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 term whatever long term is long term any kind of trends happening since you have been doing this you know it just seems more extreme uh the snow lines definitely seem to be getting higher and higher as, as climate change happens i won't say we're not ever going to get a big winter again because 2019 was a huge winter in fact we had a 100 year avalanche cycle yeah. we had a record snowpack but it seems like the the winters the droughts and the bigger years are just going to become more extreme you know we're looking at another la nina winter which tends to force the jet stream further north and keep us under drier and warmer conditions in the desert southwest and we're getting warmer wetter snowpacks we're getting more here we don't get it as much because of our up higher elevation you know up to almost thirteen thousand feet here but mountain ranges that only go to 10 11 000 feet they're, they're getting more rain on snow events storms are coming in yeah. wetter and warmer right. how this is going to affect our snowpack and even avalanche conditions rain on snow is never a good thing so that's changing things do you do you have any advice for folks who might be interested in uh, in snow and avalanche forecasting? The study of snow is pretty fascinating for sure, and there's lots of different ways to go about it. It's often referred to as snow science, 
but I think it's as much as an art as it is a science. And I actually come more from that background. I, I do not have a real science background. I've got an English degree and an art degree. <laughs> <laughs> and I worked on the ski patrol up at Alta where you get a lot of hands-on experience. And the definition of art is really methods through observation. And so when you look at what's going on out there, it's just about looking, looking at these building blocks and looking for hard layers over weak layers and learning to recognize when conditions are changing. And anyone can do it. And I think... That's one of the things is as soon as we make make it a science, I mean, there's a lot of science-minded folks, obviously, in this community, but I also think that it may frighten away the average recreationist that thinks they can't learn anything about avalanches because right. you have to have a degree in the study of snow science to be able to understand what's going on out there, and that's just not true. It's just careful observation, knowing patterns, wind loading, looking for weak layers in the snowpack, looking for signs of instability, such as cracking, collapsing, woomphing, rapid changes in temperature, rapid changes in precipitation. All of these things contribute to instability, and anyone that spends time out there can observe these things. I would just encourage everyone to study the forecast if they want to learn more about the snowpack and how it works. Take an avalanche education class, then we have on-the-field snow training. We offer several throughout the winter. Eric, thanks for talking to Science Moab about the fascinating world of snow. Very welcome. Thank you. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Science Moab Media is by Sophia Fisher, newsletter by Rhonda Cook, our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.